Welcome to the Let's Go Eat show. Hi, I'm Bill, and uh, talking to an old friend of mine. I, I, I wish we, I wish Dean Cardinal and I were like buddies. I mean, really best friends. But I would never be able to keep up with him. Uh, Dean Cardinal is an adventurer, an explorer, uh, and he's a humanitarian. And he's one of those kind of people that you just stand back and go, God, I really admire him. Uh, Dean, I went to uh, Nepal with Dean. He has a company called Worldwide Trekking. He's an adventurer. He's a, 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 just an incredible guy. And he wrote a book about his adventures, kind of. Well, you know, it's not really about his adventures. He uses some of his adventures to talk about leadership, to talk about uh, how to acquire life skills. Let me just give you a little bit of an example. Uh, he writes on the uh, uh, a dust cover for this book. Uh, the book is called Inspired, by the, well, by the way, uh, Lessons Learned from a Life of Adventure. Every life lived to the fullest is an adventure. Uh, it is also a lesson. Come along on a trip to some of the world's most exotic locales with Dean Cardinal, one of the world's preeminent adventure tour guides, as he takes you just beyond your comfort zone. Uh, you know, you don't have to go on these amazing adventures that Dean Cardinal has done to live life to the fullest. And that's part of what this book is about. And it's also part of what this Let's Go Eat show is about. Um, I think you'll like hearing from Dean Cardinal. We've done some previous interviews with him. Uh, you can, or at least one previous interview with Dean, uh, you can refer back to the Let's Go Eat show archive to hear that. But this is brand new. It's uh, Dean Cardinal. At 50 West, we sat down and uh, had a, a just a great meal of water. <laughs> Dean, Dean and I share we shared water. That's all we had, and uh, d- talked about his new book, Inspired. Here it is, Dean Cardinal on the Let's Go Eat Show. You know, Bill, if people like the book, like what they hear, like want to hear more, want to read the book, uh, we have a copy so uh, to give away for our listeners. So email me, uh, Dylan at the Let's Go Eat Show dot com. D Y L A N and we'll uh, get you a copy of the book. That's mighty generous of you. Uh, our stories, um, did they start the guns up at uh, the snowmaking uh, stuff up at... Uh... I just came down from Snowbird uh, just now, and um, their snowmaking is starting up, and uh, we picked up like seven inches of snow last night at the base. So just, of, of real snow? Yeah. 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 And so with guns, what any estimate of... Date opening? Yeah. No, not not quite yet. Yeah, yeah we'll see. It's kind of comes what comes behind this. Yeah, yeah. So our guest on the Let's Go Eat show, uh, you heard him say he just came down from Snowbird. It's uh, my my old friend Dean Cardinal, uh, and I'm just going to read the blurb from your uh, dust jacket as by way of introduction, okay, okay. Of, of your book. Dean has uh, written a book, and you you've heard me over. Um, uh, over time, talk of, talk about Dean. I, I still talk about you on the radio, on our radio show. Thank you. Fairly often. Uh, your name comes up. People ask me about you quite often. Wow. They send me emails about you quite often. You oh, know, cool. hey, Bill, I remember you went to Nepal, and I'm thinking about doing something like that. Or, or what was that guy? He has that trekking company. Who is that guy? And, uh, awesome. you know, so it happens, you know, so I, I tell them about you. But let me re- let me read this. Uh, Dean Cardinal is an avid mountain climber, outdoor enthusiast, and adventure lover. The founder of Worldwide Trekking and the president and founder of Human Outreach Project, which we'll get into uh, quite a bit. 
Uh, he has climbed and led expeditions to North America, Central America, Africa, Europe, South America, and the Himalayas, and in 2005 summited Mount Everest. He's the former president of Wasatch Backcountry Rescue, U.S. representative to the International Commission of Alpine Rescue, an avalanche instructor, and the American Avalanche Association, and an avalanche forecaster for Snowbird Ski Resort. He lives in Salt Lake City with his wife, Allison who is a lovely woman. Thank you. Uh, and uh, there are three dogs, still three dogs? Uh, yeah, one is a snowbird rescue dog, so Marty's uh, up at the resort more now. But And then Cruiser and Spike. That's right. right. Okay. The kids. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so Dean wrote this book, uh, uh, Inspired, Lessons Learned from a Life of Adventure. You have had a life of ad- adventure. There's n- there is absolutely no doubt about it. I, I know that from... The, the stories you told when you and I and, and some other people uh, trekked uh, through the, uh, the uh, uh, mountains in Nepal, the Himalayas. And uh, you told, uh, I knew, knew some of the stories that are in this book. Right, yeah. It, it, it's a life of adventure that began when you uh, said, uh, uh, when you were 22 years old and, and in the Catskill region of New York. And, and I guess you were working in Manhattan, was that right? I was in Albany, New York. Alba- oh, that's even which worse. Which is even worse, <laughs> much worse. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, you you're, you are from a family of uh, engineers. and Yeah, my father ran an engineering firm with a construction company and they had a restaurant. and uh, Still there? Still doing that kind yeah, of stuff? Yeah, my brother runs the uh, engineering company now. My sister has a hotel and restaurant, so they're yeah. still all back east. And uh, so, so you got a degree in that kind of stuff and were expected to sort of follow in the family footsteps? I was, yeah. I got a degree in mechanical design, and uh, you know, it took me five years. I ski raced through college, and then went. I, mean, I went so, to work for a few months. And people who don't know, I mean, the Catskill region and the upstate New York. I mean, it's beautiful mountains and and woods, and so you were yeah. an outdoors kind of guy, anyway, right? And I went to college in New Hampshire, uh, so, so very much yeah. outdoors, woodsy and outdoorsy, mountain biking, climbing, yeah. skiing. I did all that stuff, but but. Uh, but studied, and then and then it was you were expected to lead kind of the button down life. Yep, put on a tie. Pretty I, much, yeah. You, you know, go to work for the family business, and uh, and you did that work. for a while. I did that from May when I graduated until about October, and by that time I was miserable enough. Yeah, <laughs> not a super long career. I remember walking into my father's office and saying, "You know, day after Christmas, I'm going to move to Utah." You'd been out here. I had been out here, and. Um, it was pretty hard to forget. And, uh, you know, I had been to Colorado. I had ski racing career through college. I raced for the NCAA Division One, So I was traveling and skiing, so seeing a lot of the country and Canada and uh, elsewhere. And I just had my sights set on Utah and uh, came out, got a job at Snowbird. And my first job at Snowbird, I was working in the forklift restaurant as a line cook for the first winter. There you go. Yep. Uh, and uh, uh, and st- you still eat there occasionally. I, I do think. occasionally. <laughs> and uh, that summer, I got on with the trail crew. And by the next second winter, I was working with the ski patrol. How did your family take all of that? They were um, they weren't negative towards it, um, but they weren't really super supportive. You they know, thought, they, oh, he'll be back. Yeah, that that's pretty much the case. Yeah. yeah, and I never never went back. Never went back. No. So, Dean, that and we won't dwell on how how you went from step to step to step sure. to step. But now, you have your you have your own company, Worldwide Trekking, and you are the founder and CEO of a charity, right? Which is has a worldwide reach. 
How did that happen? Do you know? You know, I think things happen in life in, in different reasons, four different reasons. And a lot of it, when I moved out here, was following my passion. And I wasn't going to settle for something I was unhappy with. And that kind of set it off to where when I came out to Utah, I, I learned about what the patrol was doing. And I wanted to get on the ski patrol. And then I had summers off. And I started to ha- follow the passion as um, going on adventures and uh, traveling, saving up money and traveling somewhere around the world and accomplishing a goal like climbing a mountain. But a lot of people would have said, uh, that's that's... That's not a path to success. That's a path to being a bum. Yeah. That's a path, you know, living in a car. You lived in a tent for a while. Yeah. That's a path to being a bum, not a successful It was. Person. And I think when I was living in that tent um, six months, you know, out of the White Pine parking lot, and I was going to work at Snowbird, it was a pretty low point in my life. I felt like, you know, maybe they were right. Maybe I will have to go back or maybe I'm not going to succeed at this. Mm-hmm. And I, and I kind of, you know, decided that I wouldn't settle for that concept in my life. And I just continued to work hard and got a house and, you know, lived at Snowbird for a long time. And did you have some kind of an idea in your mind that you could live a life of adventure and also somehow make a living do it? I mean, I don't think you, you probably didn't have an idea in your mind. I'm going to be a a wealthy man someday or not. I mean, I don't think you that's even in your mind now, No, but you could be comfortable and, and live a life of adventure and still be comfortable. Right. In the beginning I was, uh, I was, I was young and your, your needs are less, you know, your, my need was to save enough money to go ride the coast of California on my bicycle or go to Chamonix, France and ski a bunch of big lines over there in, in, uh, France and Europe, you know, so my needs were a little bit different and it was, uh, really great to acquire the skills on the ski patrol at Snowbird. You know, you have to have a high skill level in the mountains there and then to be able to save up and, uh, eventually guide trips. And I guided for a long time and worldwide trekking really came after I summited Everest and I was back in Utah and I was thinking about working for other agencies and different companies still, I had a few people that had wanted to go on trips and I, all of a sudden I had a group that wanted to go to Kilimanjaro and I had a group that wanted to, uh, go to Mount Everest base camp. And I had a a guy that wanted to go to, uh, Mount Elbrus in Russia and then a second group on Kilimanjaro. And that's when I said, you know, I'm just going to start my own business here. Called it worldwide tracking, got an LLC. And that was in my employee housing at Snowbird where I ran the business the first four years all by myself mm-hmm. and this year I'm, I'm really excited this will be our 10th year in business how many employees do you have now by the way i've got uh gosh in in cottonwood heights at our home office it's like I've, on 23rd 23rd east or? uh 35 79 38 south 3500 east 3500 just around the corner from the smith's on right. the angle mm-hmm. and um I've got seven employees there yeah. now, and I just expanded the office. And overseas, I have operations managers in all the countries we travel. On Kilimanjaro, I have a large team of guys that I work with, up to 60, 65 people on the mountain if we have a large group. So, um, yeah, and same in Nepal, same in Peru, and all over the world. And a charity. That came about as well, the, uh, um, the Human Outreach Project. Yeah, so the Human Outreach Project, I call it HOP a lot. You know, that they... they um, that started the same time I started the business. And the you know real reason, as I was guiding overseas prior to Worldwide Trekking, 
I'd be you'd be incredibly close to the guys that you're climbing with and help them make it possible for you. And I'd oftentimes find myself leaving a, a jacket or some gloves or a pair of shoes, you know, that kind of thing. So when I started Worldwide Trekking, I really wanted to start the Human Outreach Project nonprofit so we could, as a company, have the mission to take people on adventures, help them succeed at their goals, and at the same time give back to the local communities that were helping us out. And um, my good friend in Sherpa was killed in 2005, um, shortly after we climbed Everest. And, you know, um, I wanted to go... When I started Worldwide Trekking, I wanted to go find his kids. And that was my first trip. Was what, a trip what was his name again? Ong Pasong Sherpa. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, Ong Pasong, uh, you know, um, he had three kids that were now in an orphanage in Kathmandu. My first trip was a trek to Everest Base Camp with a group. So I flew over about a week early, and I went and found them. Their aunt came with me, and I got them to get out for lunch, basically, to take them out. You know, first year nonprofit. You know, I had a few hundred dollars that I could do something with. It goes uh, it goes a long way to those kids, though. I mean, really. Well, it? now, I mean, we from there, you know, we went out to lunch, and uh, we uh, went shopping and bought some basic necessity socks, underwear, clothes, and came back, and there was about eighty five kids waiting there for us when we returned. And I felt horrible. It was like you felt great. And Ang Pasang, my buddy, and then all of a sudden it was like, you know, just nosedive. And <clears throat> when I did that, uh, I made a vow to myself that I was going to really try to, you know, do this with Worldwide Trekking and the Human Outreach Project hard. And um, when I did do that, uh, you know, I'm proud to say at this point with uh, his same children that we I met that first day 10 years ago, my oldest is now a sophomore in college. And we're we're taking care of his college and taking care of where's his he, Where is he going to college? He's going to Northampton University. It's run out of the U.K., but it's a campus that's in Kathmandu. Wow. And it's really cool. Nice campus. He's doing well. He's in his second year, and uh, the other two are coming along. But since then, we have done a tremendous amount of efforts in Nepal as well as Tanzania and even Peru. And even right here at home, we're getting ready on – uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday this week, we're delivering um, holiday meals uh, for Thanksgiving to our veterans. We have 30 families that we're delivering meals to. They get a gift card to Walmart in their card mm-hmm. so they could do some Christmas shopping, and then we'll do another holiday deliver the week of Christmas. So the, wor- uh, the work of the Human Outreach Project continues to grow, not just in in uh, in Nepal, but uh, it's in Kilimanjaro, mm-hmm. uh, in Africa as well, yep. and and here in Utah as well. Well, I you know my my vision when when I started Worldwide Trekking is that we would do whatever we could where, where in the communities where we traveled. And when I finally uh, spent four four years of Worldwide Trekking in my dorm room at Snowbird. And then I got married and I moved down to the valley and I had what I was really excited about, a home office, which was a bedroom um, for a couple years. And then about four or five years ago now, four years ago, we moved to the office space in Cottonwood Heights. And when I moved there, I, I thought as part of our mission, now here we are, we're established in Utah. We really should be doing something here at home. Yeah. So that's when we started the uh veterans uh holiday program and the first year i did six families i delivered all the meals myself 
and now we're we're kind of using uh, volunteers to come and make the deliveries for us so they can interact with it. And uh, yeah, we'll do thirty families this year twice. So uh, if people are people may not be interested in trekking around the world, but they they're and and some people are like this. They get great uh, they have great interest in trekking around the world through the experiences of others. Sure. Uh, reading about it and, and and that's great you know and, uh, and and experiencing secondhand the adventures of other people and um, the uh, uh, and helping out through a charity like this is also kind of part of that for them can, how can people get involved just here in Utah with with the human outreach project so if you go to the human outreach project.org or stop by our office at worldwide trekking we have an office in there as well um, contact us and like here at home, we want to do these programs with the veterans here, and uh, they can help make deliveries. There's a lot of things that we need to do around the office that we use volunteers. I have a volunteer right now helping us make some videos because he has video editing skills. So there's a lot of ways to get involved. Uh, overseas, we do a lot of what we call volunteerism, where people might go to Tanzania and they spend a week volunteering at our orphanage. We have four acres of land there. We have children. And they spend a week there volunteering, and then maybe they do a short safari, or maybe they just go for the volunteer mm-hmm. portion of it. And they can do the same in Nepal. We have programs there, or Peru, anywhere that we travel okay. and are established. Let's talk about the book now. So yeah, that's kind of an overview of, of, the, of the story of Dean Cardinal. But then we get into specifics of the book that you wrote, Inspired, Lessons Learned from a Life of Adventure. What did you, what did you want people to take from this book mostly? Um, I think the most important thing I think in life with people is, is finding what you're passionate about and then following your passion. And, um, because, you know, I always say, I speak to a lot of high schools and colleges and different, different groups. And, you know, one of the things I always say, if you, if you find something that you're truly passionate about, you'll never work a day in your life. You get up, you're doing what you love. It doesn't feel like work. You're not, um, you're not there, you know, wishing for the day to be done. Yeah. And um, in this, I shared 10 stories. They um, are not all successful stories. And I think that was the other portion of it is I think as you read my bio and, and it sounds really good on paper and that kind of thing, um, that doesn't come with a lot of hard work and failures. And uh, a lot of my stories are ones where I didn't summit the mountain or I had to turn back on a mountain, or I almost got killed, or I got locked in a storage container, or, or something wasn't perfect. That's what I, The storage container story <laughs> is really, you told that to me before, and then I read it again last night. Uh-huh. Good. I, and, you know, when you first told it to me, I thought, now, come on, he's put, he, he's got to be embellishing this a little bit. But you guys almost got killed in, in Indonesia, in the jungles of Indonesia, and it wasn't just you, it was a bunch of people. There was 10 of us, yeah. I mean, there were people with machine guns. First of all, it was the machete. Can you want to tell the story? Well, um, basically, we were there to climb Mount Carson's Pyramid. It's one of the seven summits, uh, highest point in, uh, you know, the continental plate of Australia and Oceania. And uh, we were there to climb that. We trekked in in a very remote jungle. Uh, after being dropped off on a dirt landing strip. You for, have to chop your way through the jungle. You do, yeah. You even have to drop trees to cross rivers. And it was the most remote feeling. Of, there's no trail. It's not like going trekking in an area where you're following a trail. You're making your way through the jungle. Do you ever think, 
in the middle of stuff like that. What what am I doing? Occasionally, <laughs> yeah. occasionally I do. I'd be lying if I didn't yeah. say that. Yeah. You know, but I do find the joy in it. And um, we got to the base camp, and I had been privately guiding one guest. I bought on a permit that had eight other guests, so there was ten of us total. So you buy into somebody else's permit. Yeah, yeah. because of the logistical yeah. nature of being able to do that. So as we went through the journey, I started to take more of a leadership role with the group just because it's what I do, and that's why I was guiding this person. And um, we got to the base camp. We did some training. Um, it was amazingly hard trek. Like through the jungle, there's days that you walk in mud up to your knees for two or more hours. I mean, it was just in, in yeah. intense. And um, we spent the day at the base camp. We did our training, like ascending fixed lines and rope skills and things like that, just so everybody would be safe on the mountain. And then we took off and we climbed the mountain the next day. Um, had a successful climb. Uh, summited, everybody summited, came back down, and we got down to the base camp. Long, long day. And uh, everybody passed out, basically. And uh, in the middle of the night, I heard someone screaming outside of my tent, just, you know, five feet away, screaming and screaming in, in Indonesian. I can't understand a word. So I got out of my tent, and nobody else got up. Um, they were all tired, you yeah. know, so I got out of my tent. And scared. And, yeah. I'm not going out there. <laughs> so there's a guy out there with a machete, and he's smacking it on the ground. And one of the local guys that was working with us, you know, is out with me. And he's saying, basically, this guy's saying that one of them has been killed, and one of them dies, one of us dies. So they're going to even the score, basically. They were down at a lower camp. Apparently. Yeah, the porters that uh, helped us bring our gear in... Um, when we're on the mountain for those few days that we're climbing the mountain, they go about two hours down Canyon and there was some caves down there that they were seeking shelter. And it rains a lot there, like 60, 70% of the time it's raining out. And, um, then, uh, while they were in there, a big flake of rock came off the roof of the cave and it crashed down on one of the young porters, hit him in the head. And they said he was dead. So the next day I decided... And somehow that's your, your guy's fault. Or yeah, well, we were the reason. We, yeah. That's yeah. the mentality. Yeah. And um, afterwards, after the whole thing, the local guys that I, that I talked to told me that's very much... They were very much serious. Yeah. And um, I laid there in my tent. I, I didn't really sleep after that. But uh, he took off after a couple hours of yelling at, in my face and, and stuff. He just took off back down the canyon. So I know there's a porter that's hurt down there. My guy's translating to me. And um, I laid there in my tent and I thought, you know, tomorrow we can either wait here until they get so enraged that they really come up angry. Or maybe it would be best if we go down there and visit them and see what's going on and, and show a good gesture of if we can help. And I don't know how smart that was. But uh, nonetheless, the next day I talked to the entire group and I told them what had happened in the night. And I went back down the canyon with a couple of the local guys. Did you say just wait here and I'll go check it out? I didn't have much volunteers wanting to go with yeah. me. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> You guys wait here. Yeah, that's what we were, okay, yeah, well, we're going to do. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, so I trekked on down there. And, you know, at first I think there's this... You know, coming from where we come from, it's like, you're not going to kill one for one and, and all this stuff. You're just saying that yeah. that's not going to happen. Certainly we can reason with them. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Right. And um, we uh, 
trekked on down there and uh, I could tell the two, the guys that were with me that were local guys, they were really uncomfortable. Yeah. And that was making me, as they were looking all around at the sides and, and seeing if anybody's uh, hiding out and that kind yeah. of thing, boy, I was starting to get uncomfortable. And when we got down towards camp, there was a guy sitting out of camp, outside of camp. He had a gun. And he was just sitting there, and we just started walking straight into the camp, and he started walking in with us to, towards his cave. When I got to the cave, you know, one of the guys that was, you know, a leader of their type crew came over, and he grabbed me by the forearm and just started walking me into camp. And I'm thinking, like, whoa, you know, this is now becoming serious. And he took me all the way through, and he brought me to where this porter had been injured and the porter was uh i could see a tarp on the ground where a body was being covered up which was never a good sign and i went over and he showed me the big flake of rock that fell off and they wanted me to take pictures you know they don't have any technology like that so he's making the picture sign and then um then uh basically i went over and i undid the tarp and when i did that i thought gosh i'm really taking responsibility now and I could see immediately that the the guy was breathing, and I said he's not dead. And I they thought he was. They really thought he was dead. Yeah, they thought he's dead. They had him covered head to toe, over top of him. And uh, we used that tarp to make a makeshift kind of stretcher, mm-hmm. and I wrapped him up in that using their help. I've learned at Snowbird when bystanders are are present, if you can get them to help, it it lowers the tension because now get they're not just busy. Yeah. yeah, you keep them busy, yeah. and uh, we kind of made this team rescue effort and we carried them into the freeport gold mine and yeah there's a huge gold mine huge yeah. gold mine there. i've i've seen pictures of it so yes. we carried them on in there and the security force of course met us we came over the rise there's a few guys up there with machine guns and we just went right towards them they called an ambulance took them away and then i went by the end of the day right around sunset or so i was back at our high camp so you must be group. thinking at this time we're pretty good here. This yeah. is good. We're good. We've solved the situation. They know they know we've helped, and they're not going to kill us. Right. So, you know, that's what, what I'm thinking. You know, at least we did what we could do. Yeah. And um, I went back up the group. I, I briefed the group on what happened. Oh, Dean, thanks so much. <laughs> God. Oh, my God. They Thank thought you. that I was just, you know, one for one. I was gone. Yeah. So <laughs> We thought they were going to kill you, but that's great. So, um I went back up there, briefed the group, and when we started to talk about it as a group, um, you know, I I decided that, uh, you know, everybody say how they feel and what they think we should do as a group, and we were all pretty uncomfortable trekking back through the jungle with this group that threatened our life, um, showing up at the village uh, without one of their... You know, then there's a whole bunch of other people that get involved with what they want to do to us because now this boy is not with us. Yeah. He's somewhere in yeah. the hospital. And, um, you know, we decided that we'd go back down. I told them that they came with an ambulance and took him away. Maybe they'll get us a rescue. And we went down, and it was the security force at the Freeport Mine. And it's a long story. There's a lot of details, as you know. But, yeah. um, um, you know, Basically, uh, we went down in the security force. You know, we spent 10 days in a storage container. Locked you up in a storage container. All How many people? We could get out, in and out to go to the bathroom and stuff. There was 10 of us total. But when we lay down to go to bed in, in the evening, we were like shoulder to shoulder like logs of firewood, you know. Was there ever any explanation really why they detained you for so long? I mean, the, 
You know, I mean, I know there's tight security. There was a lot of unrest at that time yeah. with striking miners. And, yeah, that was a big part of it. Yeah. And, I mean, did they detain you? Did they try to explain it because it was for your own safety, or did they? Say, no, 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 no. They were um, pretty aggressive towards us. They. Um, they think you were going to steal their gold. Well, the I think there's a security issue in some ways with that, but really, I think the mining operation being on strike. Uh, incapacitated the road out of the mine back to the airport. So I think they could have thought, like, we'll keep these guys for a few days, and they'll give us a bribe, and then we'll drive them back out of here towards the airport. And they couldn't do that because there was no access in and out. But, you know, they did a couple things. I mean, they came to the mine or to that Connex container and woke us up, woke me up. I would get up every two hours all through the night getting up and standing out front with three guys, two guys that were just pretty much talking and aggressively talking. I can't understand what they're saying, offering me a cigarette and blowing the smoke in my face. I mean, just like after four or five days of that, that gets really to be a difficult uh, situation, yeah. you know, mentally. You get emotional and and, yeah. and scared. and Well, in the beginning, you, you, again, have a little bit of denial and hope. You know, you're just like, oh, God okay, this is, they're going to come get us out of here. Day three, they're going to come get us out of here, but this is a long time. They're giving us a, a little container with a rice, a portion of rice in it, like white rice, and uh, a water bottle every day. And then, you know, day six, you're starting to say, like, whoa. Did you ever think that they were going to kill you, or did you, did you think they were going to, like, just put you in a jail somewhere and let you rot? Or? I, you know, I was the most uncomfortable late in the week that, you know, five, six days into it in the middle of the night because they would have a, a bunch of different security guards and they could come pop, pop, pop by any time every couple hours. Yeah. And I remember standing out there with three guys in particular, each of them having an automatic weapon. They're, you know, screaming in my face and they're talking to each other. But one guy is not talking at all. He's just standing there staring at me. And I'm thinking like, gosh, in any second, these guys could just fap. Yeah. You know, and, and we're dead. Yeah. And I mean, it's not like anybody's we were very remote, you know, like, you know, who knows where you'd end up. And, it would take you know. a long time for anybody to figure out what had happened. Yeah. So what I did, you know, I mean, obviously, I. Just like anything in my life, you, you know, you try to put out that negative thinking and it's a hurdle. You know, you're sitting there trying to not think of those bad things and, and try to think this is going to be OK. We're Did you get keep this. so you'd become kind of the de facto leader? Yeah. And it was your decision to go there. Did you keep sort of second-guessing yourself, too, and saying, God, what did I do? Well, it's interesting. When we were when I went back after I went down and helped do the rescue of the injured porter and i got back up to the camp late in that evening um and we had a group meeting and uh one of the guys that was on the trip he's a little bit older gentleman than i and he uh um, was from california he was an american guy and he stood up to the group and said i vote that we make dean the leader and that he can help make these decisions because you do have to have leadership in a yeah. situation like that and like in the book you know what i what i learned about that is you know you take leadership roles when you're guiding and people are signing on to say a trip and that kind of thing. There's certain things in life that you don't expect and that sometimes the leadership role might fall in your lap and, and you're there to take it. And, uh, it made me do some things. I, I, you know, um, 
I got in the vehicle one time when they came to get us and locked all the doors and they smashed the window in with a crowbar and threw me in the ground. And, you know, but with that radio transactions happened and, and that's eventually what got us free. What I did learn about the group was that, um, you know, no matter what with leadership, the most important thing is that you, you know, treat everybody like an individual. You don't, you know, leaders don't just delegate orders or tell people what to do. You know, they bring people together. And that's what we really, what I was really trying to do. When I, I wouldn't say, now I'm the leader, I'm going to make the decisions and this is what we're going to do. I'd say, Bill, what do you think? Yeah. You know, and, and John, what do you think? And, and so on. And they go around and, and we discuss it. And it really kind of helped lessen the, t- you can imagine 10 days where Man. in a, in a 16 foot container, you know, people are starting to get really short with one another, to say the least. And starting to question your, your role yeah. as a leader. And, yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's to me, that's the hardest thing. And it says here uh, in that uh, chapter, the not-so-reluctant leader is what you called yourself, I guess. Uh, but, but in the end, it, it, did, it, it worked out. Everybody gets out of there. So, yeah, so um, basically when we first went into the mine, I had everybody wait by where this container was, and I went. It was, it was, I don't know, 50 feet of visibility, and I went searching for somebody, so I went hiking through the mine. I could hear heavy equipment, and I was looking all around in a big dump truck with tires that are about 10 feet tall came driving up towards me and I stopped it and I got in there and I got on his uh, radio and I called for help and uh, he couldn't talk or anything. Well, sure enough, the pub- the security force came and they helped by bringing us over to the container. Um, and then when we got there, I could tell there was two vehicles. I talked to the other and these two guys were opening up the container. I'm thinking like, gosh, these guys are gonna this is they're gonna put us in here and i went around and got in the vehicle and locked all the doors i got about four or five of the others to get in with me we locked the doors they had to call on the radio again and um when they did that uh the the other vehicle came back the guy smashed the window in with the crowbar and then a couple days later when they had a vehicle there i i stood in front of the vehicle and wouldn't let him drive away you're getting quite desperate you know and um, my group got out and stood in front of the vehicle, and he had a call for backup. So with all these radio transmissions, eventually what happened was a Western miner named Alec, really thankful for him, he, um, he came looking for us and found us. And uh, it took him quite a while to find where we were, but he was listening to the radio calls and traffic. And so he sneaked me up to his office, and I'd send some emails. You know, I'd send an email to Allison. You know, your um, wife. Yeah, don't. Uh, everything's everything's fine. Can you send me a credit card with a really high limit? Because I would think I was going to need to charter a helicopter. And um, you know, I never really send emails back that say like everything's fine. Really, it's everything's good. You know, but I need I a bunch trying, of money. <laughs> <laughs> I send a lot of money. So um, yeah. So I, you know, over the course of time, he found us. But because of the security force at the mine, it still took like three more days till the general manager would let us get through the mine and out. So then they knew. And we were making it quite public. You know what I mean? We're trying to send a message out. So now people do know that we're there and we're being trapped, sent a photo Mm -hmm. of the group. Um, And then finally, uh, I was getting dropped off from his office. He'd sneak me in and out. And I came back and was briefing the group. And he pulled back up and he said, and this was like nine, ten days into it, he said, you know, um, I just talked to the general manager. He said to get you out tomorrow. 
So then what I did was I picked like six, I think it was, people to go with him right then, and they drove down to his place to spend the night. And then the rest of us had to stay behind because he couldn't fit us all in the truck. And that was really stressful because they were still coming every couple hours to wake us up. Mm. So you had to kind of be right in the doorway and go out front. And if they saw inside, we were afraid of what could happen. So then about 3 in the morning, came picked us up. It was about a three-hour ride through this mine down to his apartment where we all hid. And then the next day when they were flying helicopters in and out to uh, bring miners in and out, um, we ran in on the last helicopter. It was a big Russian, like, 25-seater, and we all jumped in there, and all of a sudden we're flying away, connecting. Anybody ever held accountable for any of this that you know of? No, and, um, you know, the, the, the engineer that helped us out, has been in touch with me ever since. Um, he brought his wife and daughter on one of my Kilimanjaro trips a few years ago. And, you know, I, I think he did have quite a lot of respect for the efforts that I was putting forth. And uh, we've been in touch. Does he still work at the mine? He does. Yeah, he does still work there. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating story, and you can find it in this book by Dean Cardinal, Inspired. I do, I do is this, and this is available. Amazon, on, Amazon is probably the easiest place Easiest to place to get it. Yeah. Um, what do you learn... Uh, so, so you, I mean, I think from that you learn, you learn that you can be a leader in uh, dangerous situations and with people who are under high stress. I think, yeah, I think that's a, a big part of it, learning that sometimes uh, the leadership role, you know, just all of a sudden happens uh, and, and situations happen and, and you have it, to take action. You it's know? just thrust on you sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. I mean... Um, it's. Uh, I like the title of this, uh, too, and maybe you could just expound on this a little bit. Uh, there's a chapter, Chapter 5, Wasatch uh, Backcountry Rescue. Uh, the best rescue is one that never needs to happen. Yeah, coming from here in Utah, you know, I've been on so many backcountry rescues. I, I headed WBR for over a decade, uh, plus 12 more years, and um, I saw so many accidents where people... Unfortunately, made a bad decision and like to uh, ski out of bounds. Yeah, like backcountry what? skiing on a high hazard day. You know, there, it wasn't. It was a combination of things that could have been avoided. Mm-hmm. And um, what I've learned with the with the backcountry skiing, mountaineering, in any high hazard uh, type occupation or situation, maybe recreational activity, um, you have to make decisions for yourself. And you know. By educating yourself, by going to the Utah Avalanche Center's forecast uh, website and seeing what the situation is and and then getting outside and saying, hey, it's snowing really hard now and we've just picked up a foot. You know, I mean, things are going to happen in the mountains. We've seen it before. And preparing yourself for self-rescue and and things like that. But making wise choices in the the mountain, on the mountain – is uh, is so important because if you are involved, like with this Wasatch Backcountry Rescue chapter, um, in an avalanche, there's a, a good chance that you're going to be injured and maybe killed, right? So if you can avoid that from happening from the first place by educating yourself, by making good decisions, by training and learning about the snow and snowpack, um, it's going to hopefully help help you out. If you do it, if you're going to do it. Uh, it, it, I mean, really, and what you're, I'm just to reiterate what you're saying. If you're gonna do it, it it only makes sense to understand what you're doing. Yes, and, and, and how many people would you say that do these kinds of things that get involved in accidents in the backcountry skiing 
do it, get involved in accidents because they have no idea what the risks are. Yeah, or they take is big, that most of them. Yeah, and they take big risks. They go out when the hazard is high, or mm-hmm. they go out during the storm, or shortly after the mm-hmm. storm. Most accidents happen shortly after the storm. So we just picked up two feet of snow in the mountains, and it's been snowing for a few days, and now it's blue skies. Well, that snow is just all sitting up there, ready, waiting for a trigger. So it really depends on how much instabilities are in the snow, what the history of the snow is there's so many variables but somebody can go out with less education on lower angle slopes right so they go out in a, an area that has less prone to avalanche activity and they start there and then they with stability and or more education they they get steeper slopes and you know they go out with their a, a partner always and they're both prepared to help each other out and they use the tools you know like uh calling the avalanche center or going to the website and educating themselves on the obvious signs of instability and things like that and then they can make better decisions and work their way up now when you're on the ski patrol uh, and i do you still do this in the winter you're 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 one of the guys who, who gets out there at Snowbird, very first thing in the morning. Yes. And and it's your job to go out there and get the resort ready. And a lot of that involves going out and, and after a first snowfall. During the storm. Or during a storm. Yeah. Yep. And go out and trigger avalanches. Yeah, we do. We hunt, we're avalanche hunters. On your skis. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes <laughs> we shoot artillery or, or cannons, and we use explosives, and we go out on our skis and ski slopes and ski check and, and monitor and, them. And you no- knock your skis against things to cause av- That yeah. seems to me, now, you have a high degree of knowledge, but it's still pretty risky. But I guess the risk is minimized because you've done it a long time and you know what you're doing. I think um, – Yes, and I think no, too. I think there's a the yes is that um, when you've done it a long time and uh, you can recognize I've seen this before, I think, you know, this is mm-hmm. fragile, that kind of thing. The other thing is, you know, I always say, you know, the mountain decides. The mountain doesn't care if you're an avalanche professional. The mountain doesn't care that you just took an avalanche course. The mountain doesn't care if you have a wife and kids that are going to miss you at home. You know, the the mountains just are going to react to your presence. So you have to make decisions. And the longer you do something, you can never get complacent. You definitely have to make sure that you continue to have that. It, it can happen to you, and you have to make your wise decisions. Um, the... Um, the uh Five hazardous attitudes and breaking the chain. That's yep. the choyu oyu, or cho oyu. Uh, talk about that just a little bit. So um, this is uh, part of uh, my wife Allison's training. These are guidelines that are brought on by the FAA, and I, I think they're just an awesome way to uh, to look at things. You know, um, uh, uh, Dean's wife is a is a pilot. Yeah, she works for United Express, and uh, in the FAA, if I could just see these. Yep. Um, so the five hazardous attitudes, you know, invulnerability, you know, can't happen to me. Um, being uh, impulsive, if you do it quick, it's it's less risky, right? Um, uh, I'd have to look at the other few. But um, resignation, um, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. So, so there's these attitudes that you can, when I'm making decisions in the mountain, I'm always thinking of... Am I going down one of these paths? Am I trying to be another one uh, macho? Mm-hmm. Is everybody as a guy depending on me to be able to do this? And I, I can't 
I don't want them to think we can't. So by breaking the chain, it's it's saying like you know maybe I'm being a little bit um, invulnerable, thinking it can't happen to me, or maybe I'm being a little bit of uh, overconfident because you know I have a an attitude that's for lack of a word, macho attitude yeah. that, to my group. So it's a matter of recognizing one of the hazardous attitudes, and then by breaking the chain, it's not only recognizing it, stopping it. It's like that old joke, famous last words are, hey, guys, watch this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The pressure. Yeah. You know, so, so these are just some really, and they're all different. And I think when you look at accidents, there's a lot of the times, so, you know, if you have the five hazardous attitudes, resignation, anti-authority, overconfidence, impulsive, or invulnerability, mm-hmm. one of those things is going to happen um, if you're having an accident. Most of the time, yeah. and sometimes a, a couple of them, like I was being overconfident and I was feeling invulnerable. So now, have you? You must have experienced that. I've, I've broken. You've broken those rules. Haven't yeah, you? of course. The other thing about those rules, I think, is you have to push those rules right to the edge every time you can. If, if every t- well, you know, you you shy back on everything, you're never really going to accomplish the goal. So it's about challenging. The you know uh, added the gotcha. hazardous attitude yeah. and right to the edge, but falling on the right side of the edge. And, and I would guess uh, you know you were, you're 22 when you came out here. Not, yeah. How old are you now? 47. So I'm guessing now that you're 47, you don't challenge those rules too much anymore. I do, and I don't. I mean, I think I um, recognize uh, hazard and stuff more, but uh, you know, I I do have to push those rules, and where I, I push those rules. Uh, honestly, is is with guests that I take into environments. When you take a d- twelve people on a trip and you're on Kilimanjaro in the middle of the night, going to nineteen thousand three hundred feet, and it's you know four o'clock in the morning and you're seventeen, eighteen thousand feet up there, you know you are now. I'm only as strong as my slowest guest, right? So. Yeah. I was. I know what you're talking about because I was your slowest guest <laughs> when we were. <laughs> but we pushed along, and, and yep. you'd be surprised what people can accomplish. And sometimes, uh, for me, I always think about, you know, guiding groups of individuals. Every single person is different. Everybody's there for a different reason. Maybe they do the same thing, but for different reasons. Mm-hmm. And I have to tap into the different feelings of each guest and push them to their limits. You know, and that that's including to myself as well. Some of the things. Um, you know, in the last 10 years, getting my sailing uh, license, my captain's license, so I could take groups. I, you know, took a group to uh, uh, the British Virgin Islands uh, this summer, and I'm going to St. Martin to take a group in about a week. And um, at first, when I, you know, take a sailing trip in Croatia or Turkey or something like that, in the Mediterranean or down the Caribbean, it was more stressful. You know, I'd sailed a lot, and I got my license, and I was doing that. But when you're taking the responsibilities of others... Now I'm the captain. Yeah. Now, you're, now you really have and a lot of pressure. And it was new to you. New it was you. newer than yeah. some of the... You know, I always sailed as a kid and all that stuff, but to, you know, now you have a 55-foot sailboat that weighs a lot, that there's a lot going on on that kind of vessel. So, yeah, it was something that, uh, you know, I did my 10-day practical course and past and everything was great but uh yeah there's always just different new pressures it's like when we travel to a new area of the world um i want you to, I was, let's finish up a little uh, here uh is a story you told in the book uh that i 
found really, really telling, and it's a story that everybody, and it's very short, that everybody should take note of, and it's when you and Allison were on your honeymoon. Uh-huh, Cotopaxi, Ecuador. God, I loved that story. I get a lot of good compliments on that story. Oh, man. So just, just it, briefly, the, the, nut, the nut of that story. Enjoy the journey. That is, that's such you a know? great story. Yeah, and that was, you know, we were on our honeymoon, and we were, Allison was new to um, hiking on glaciers, and we were using crampons for the first time and things like that. So w- when you do that and you're, you know, climbing this 19,000-foot mountain down there in Ecuador, her ankles were getting fatigued because she wasn't used to the crampons, those spikes that go into the ice. And uh, they were making her ankles turn and just uncomfortable. You know, and at some point I, I remember just thinking, like, let's just, let's just go down. You know, enjoy. In, you know, and enjoy. The, this is our honeymoon. Let's enjoy this. She wasn't time. having any fun. And it was. And we started down, and life was good, and and there was no reason we had to summit that mountain. And I think it goes back to when I was a kid, and I was working construction for my father, and there would be guys that we would sit there until seven o'clock when the whistle blew, and you'd start to work. And I remember guys saying, "Come on, five because that was the time that we quit at the end of the day, and. Uh, I remember thinking, like, uh, how sad is life when you're looking for the day to end, you know? So yeah. for me, it was about enjoy the moment. Enjoy the moment in front of you. Enjoy the journey of life. Enjoy each precious yeah. moment we have. It was, uh, you know, you did you did something similar kind of for me when we went to Nepal, and I was kind of walking. I, I had a, uh, it was, I got sick as we got higher altitude, yep. and I got, got pretty sick, and it was, you know, and as you say, put one foot in front of the other and mm-hmm. just move forward. And, it, it, and that got very difficult to do, you know. Mm-hmm. And everything gets kind of a fog around you and you can't eat. Right. You know, you, you don't look at the food and you just, you go, I can't even touch this food. And, you know, you think, how am I going to get there? And, you know, Dean would walk with me and say, you know, we'll just, we'll, we'll be fine. We'll just walk. We'll, you'll get to see the base camp. Uh-huh. And so we got to the point where I could see the base camp. Right. I saw it. There it is. Yep. It's right down there. You see it? And I said, yep, there I it is. It. I made it enough. <laughs> yeah. I made it enough. You know, I did. I, and I thought, that's there, okay. And, and that was fine. And I went, and, I, and then I got to go to a, a, a tea house. Uh, uh, that primitive, it was pretty primitive. Yeah, because that's the last one in Gorkshap. Yeah. It's, and uh, it's, everybody else was pretty, in pretty good shape, and they all went up the next day, uh, uh, Kal- Kalapatar. Yes. And I, uh, there was no way I was going to do that. And you right. said, "That's just stay here and rest." Yeah. So I stayed there and just kind of just laid about and felt a little kind of better, a lot better. Yep. And the next day we started down. That's a long way out. And but but it was amazing that very first day you start going down. Within two hours, you're feeling a little better. Right. And a little better, and a little, and the next day you're feeling way better and way better and way better because the altitude goes away. And you, but it was a, it was a it was the same kind of thing though. I just felt you know there there it was. I I've, I've done this and I I I've, I did it enough. Yeah, I did it enough. And I think that's you know people have to enjoy the moments. When I talk to my groups at the beginning of the trip, I tell them you have to enjoy this journey. You have to enjoy each day and each hour we're out there because if you're thinking that. You're only going to enjoy standing on top of Kilimanjaro for the 20 minutes we're there and not the rest of the time. I mean, 
it's going to be a it's not going to be a very fun trip for you so you have to enjoy being at the tea house and seeing the culture and visiting That's a monastery getting your head shaved or whatever yeah. you did yeah. there yeah. so you know if you're enjoying all that stuff along the way you're going to have a successful I, trip i even enjoy thinking back upon the sickness if, if that's understandable, of feeling that altitude sickness, I even enjoy that the the memory of that. Right, and it's it was a remarkable. The whole thing was so remarkable. Yeah, the experience of it. I mean, people come back from our trips. I'm I feel so lucky all the time because, you know, I take groups. I have a group of com- pretty much strangers. You know, maybe a couples and, and things like that. So you have ten or twelve people that don't know each other from all over the country. And by the end of the trip, they're, you know, best friends, want to have a reunion and that kind of thing. And People you, get along. They do. Some... They're generally in it for the same reasons, you know, they, you know that, that kind of thing. So they generally get along. I don't have very much tension in groups like that. And when they come back, you know, you're a part of this thing that's quite life-changing for them. And I feel really honored to be a part of so many successful people that I'll take and, you know, bring to, say, uh, Everspace Camp or Kilimanjaro or Machu Picchu or something, and they're just, you know, the just blown away with how it's changed their life. You I know? still I still have the uh, piece of string oh, right, that, uh, the they, llama. that the llama put around my neck, and I still remember... Uh, Gelgen, the uh, the Sherpa who took us, the guide, the head uh-huh. guide, Gelgen, yep. said uh, the, the the Lama wants to know if you have any questions, and I said, uh, yeah, I want to know how best to complete our journey, and Gelgen translated, and the Lama who looked like he was right out of Hollywood casting, little uh-huh. little old man with gigantic glasses, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and he and he replied to Gelgen, that he talked to him for a long time. In, in Nepalese, uh-huh. and Gelgen is nodding and nodding and nodding and nodding. And, and then he turns to me and he says, he says you must be strong. It was a great experience. Uh, Dean Cardinal, the book is Inspired, Lessons Learned from a Life of Adventure. Uh, it's it's just, it's a you can read it in a night just a, yeah. just before you go to bed. It's uh, it's it's great. Some great stories, and uh, worldwide trekking. Just go to worldwide trekking. Uh, it's www.trek.com. Yeah, or just look for worldwide trekking. Worldwide trekking. Google it. Google it'll it. Come it'll right come up. up. It's a, a local company. Uh, but he'll take you anywhere pretty much in the world, all over the place. Uh, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, Bill. Thanks, Dylan, for setting all this up for the Let's Go Eat Show. Thanks to the uh, Club at 50 West here for providing us a space and some delicious water. Uh, that's it. I'm Bill Allred. Uh, uh, that's it. Uh, remember, if you're pouring the drinks, always make mine the double.